0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. I want to begin by asking you uh, a question this morning. If your phone was to ring right now, and I sincerely hope it doesn't, uh, and someone was to ask you, where are you this morning? Uh, What would you answer? That's probably two questions, but never mind. Even if you're a bit forgetful, um, you might just have noticed the lettering above the door as you come in, which said Castlereagh Fellowship. Now, Ray, of course, refers to the the area uh, where we are where we're situated this morning. But what does fellowship mean to you this morning? The building, of course, isn't very important. It simply facilitates our gathering here this morning. But fellowship describes something which is hugely important. You can gain a fellowship into some sort of prestigious university or society, but the biblical idea of fellowship is way more significant than that. Paul, as he writes, he puts it like this. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. So it seems to me that that being together in fellowship is not just some sort of being together in some sort of a physical location on the map, but it is a place of, of safety and a place of strength within a bond with Jesus Christ, which God calls us into this morning. It's something of huge significance. Where can we find the assurance of eternal life and thus true fellowship with the Father and the Son? And how do we know if others who claim to know God are actually part of that same fellowship? Well, I think a good starting point would be these words, and you may recognize them. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. Now, it seems to me that someone who claims to be writing to give such clarity on such an important matter had better have some darned good credentials. Now, of course, all of you Bible scholars out there will recognize this verse as being from the first of three letters attributed to the Apostle John, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. But of course, you'll also know that together with the epistle to the Hebrews, these are the only letters in the New Testament which do not actually name the writer. The title that you see in your Bible this morning uh, was added by the church, uh, but these there are very good reasons uh, to believe that that is indeed true. First of all, the the early church readily accepted him as the author. And secondly, uh, you you can't really read these letters uh, alongside the gospel of John and and not be struck by the the similarity of of style uh, and phrase that exists. And thirdly, of course, the writer identifies himself as a close companion of Jesus And by a process of elimination, it's not really too difficult to deduce the author as John, the beloved disciple. Why does any of that matter? Uh, Well, if it's John that's writing, then of course his credentials are absolutely impeccable. If anybody at all in this whole wide world knows what fellowship with Jesus Christ is, it's going to be John. So let's read 1 John chapter 1. Uh, We're going to read The whole chapter and uh, a a bit out of chapter 2. So, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also might have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and the word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The one who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message that you have heard. Yet I am writing to you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. And that'll maybe suffice for our reading uh, this morning. One final verse, which you needn't turn to, uh, we can find in chapter 5, verse 13, and you'll know this well. Um, And this is perhaps the key to the entire letter. Uh, John writes, I write these words to you who do believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you might know that you have eternal life. So why is he writing to offer the assurance of eternal life? And why has he so much to say about fellowship? Now, it seems to me that those two issues are intertwined. Well, the people that he wrote to were pretty shaken up by recent events. You see, some influential people who had been a big part of the church had got up, they'd walked out, and they'd walked away. They claimed that their ideas were just so much better, so vastly superior to that of the apostles. And as you can imagine, whenever that happened, it was pretty unsettling. The folks who moved out were later known as Gnostics. And they had a, a sort of a twin-track view of reality. On one hand, the spiritual world was was regarded as, as good, on the other hand, the material world as evil. And the, the sort of solution that they had to the, the, the tension between those two was knowledge. Knowledge was the big thing. Superior knowledge enabled one to rise above the the mundane stuff of life to the spiritual plane. And that led them to deny that Jesus had come in the flesh. Some regarded Jesus as some sort of a ghost, others as sometimes human, sometimes divine. And because they believed that human bodies, which were after all part of the the material world, were were evil, some treated their bodies harshly, while others took the complete opposite view and were completely promiscuous, believing that what was done in the body had no impact whatsoever on their spiritual lives or salvation. You could live exactly as you wanted. And although they had left the main body of believers, they they propagated their ideas wherever they could get a hearing. And that just led to doubts and confusion amongst those who remained. So John's purpose in writing this first letter is to bolster their faith by providing various tests that would do two things. First of all, expose the claims of those competing beliefs as the error that they truly were. And secondly, to reassure the believers of the truth of the gospel message and the fellowship that they were part of. And in order to do those things, he gives us three separate tests that they can apply. But before we even consider those tests, we need to understand where John is starting from. John calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. It was John who leaned back on Jesus as they ate the Passover feast together. It was John who was entrusted with the loving care of Mary as she stood broken before the cross, watching as her son Jesus died for the sins of the world. Jesus, or sorry, John knows all about the love of Jesus. He's seen it. He's experienced it. And he cannot but delight in it and declare it to everyone. But before anyone signs up for the program, John makes it absolutely clear that fellowship with God is not a matter of just being somehow chummy with your good friend up in the sky. If we in 2023 want to have true fellowship with God, we must start where John starts. John doesn't begin with some sort of an upbeat message to help people feel good. He's not trying to help them live a more fulfilling, successful life. We might expect him to say, to have fellowship with God, you must first realize that he loves us. He's a lot to say about love, but not just yet. Instead, he says in chapter 1, verse 5, here's the message for you. God is light. And I think that light here refers to God's absolute holiness. John follows it up by saying, "In him, there's no darkness at all." Here's John's starting point, and the place that we must all start, if we want, if we desire to have assurance of salvation and a fellowship with God. God is holy." And you know I enjoyed the, some of the hymns that we were singing this morning. Come. And worship a holy God. That's our starting point. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preacher of old, in his book, Fellowship with God, argues that we must always start with God. He states that our biggest problem is our obsession with ourselves. Can God fix my problems? Can he meet my needs? I'm not happy. Can God make me happy? I'm looking for something that I just don't have. Can God give it to me? Or what can your church offer me? Does it meet my tick list? Forget yourself, said Lloyd-Jones, and fix your eyes on God. The way to be delivered from self-centeredness is to contemplate God. And John says bluntly that if we want to have fellowship with God, we must begin not with ourselves and our needs, but with him and what he has revealed to us about himself. If we don't appreciate the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, we will never understand the truth of the gospel. Without the realization of these two truths, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, the cross, says Lord, George, Lord Jones, is unnecessary and meaningless. You see, many people nowadays claim to have fellowship with God. But often the God that they fellowship with is not the God of the Bible. Instead, they have molded a God to suit their own needs. They have the user-friendly version. One who is malleable enough to fit in with their lifestyle choices when it comes to sin and morality, sexuality, truth, the sanctity of life, etc., etc. And in reality, this God serves us. We don't serve him. We don't need to be reconciled to a holy God. We just need him to see things our way. The false teachers of that day bypassed faith in Jesus and claimed a spiritual fellowship with God without the cost or without suffering. They offered much and demanded very little, which sounded pretty attractive. But John is clear. We sinners can only have fellowship with this holy God through the blood of Jesus, his son, which purifies us from all sin, 1-7. So that's John's starting point. So what are these false claims and how does John reassure the believers? Well, if you read through these letters, you'll see that a key word is the word knowledge. And over and over again, we find John using the word knower, that you might know or some combination of the two. And of course, what was the, the thing that the false teachers claimed to have an abundance, superior knowledge? So we see that although John uses very tender language as he addresses these believers, he meets the false, leader, false teacher's claims face on. Doesn't actually name them by name, but he nails their pronouncements as lies. And he identifies three false claims. First of all, if we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not have the truth and do not live out the truth. That's 1.6. Secondly, if we claim we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1.8. And thirdly, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Two four. It's pretty stark, isn't it? John simply calls them out. And it's just as important for us to identify the false claims that are peddled today. Some of the ideas that are being so forcibly ruled out in today's society have their roots back in Gnosticism. They don't call it that, of course. But it's a fact that 2nd and 3rd century Gnostics taught that what you feel in your mind is more important than physical reality. And that salvation is to be found not in Jesus Christ, but within oneself. I'm sure that sounds pretty familiar to you. And if you want to check that out, I recommend you can, you can visit the Christian Institute website, which has an excellent uh, item on that. They did not belong to us, said John And we cannot have fellowship with those who propagate the same lies today. But those that remained needed the grace of assurance that they could walk with God, that they can rest in him and abide with him, enjoy fellowship with him. I wonder, do you need that assurance? Do you need that grace of assurance this morning? Because sometimes our hearts do go cold, don't they? We get drawn away by the the siren voices of this world. And we need to hear John's words to give us the assurance that we mortals can have real, vibrant, joyous fellowship. Listen to John in chapter 1, verse 3. We proclaim what we have seen and heard so that we might have fellowship with you and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. You know, as I read that, I actually stopped and I thought about it for quite a while. What's fellowship? You know, this sort of bond of, uh, of unity with a common purpose. And just imagine, uh, you know, you and I are sitting here in Castlereagh Fellowship this morning and we're united in fellowship with John the Apostle, someone who, who lived alongside the Lord Jesus. And we have the same bond with millions of believers across the globe, a band of brothers and sisters redeemed by Christ with this one common purpose, to be to the praise of his glory. We belong this morning. We belong. What a glorious thing that is. But more amazing still, you and I can have fellowship with the holy, almighty, sovereign creator God, Our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. As image bearers, we were made to enjoy God's glory, to worship him and to have fellowship with him. And you know, some Christians, it seems, can take fellowship or leave it. And this morning, they have better things to do. That's very sad, isn't it? What possibly could be better than to sit at the table that Jesus invites us to this morning. John wants fellowship with the Father and the Son so that our joy might be complete. You see, John realised that this world is just not capable of providing true joy for the human heart. That joy can only come from fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus The departure from the church had shaken their confidence. So John writes to equip the believers so that they can identify the false teachers. And he also writes to assure them of their salvation. So he sets out the identifying marks of Christian fellowship. I wonder, do you need that assurance this morning that you are truly a child of God? Assurance that you are truly in Christ this morning. John is is equipping his people to be discerning, but he's also reminding them of who they are themselves. He says, you used to stumble around in the darkness, but now you no longer belong to the darkness. You belong in the light. Now walk in the light and know the assurance that that brings. So, At last, we arrive at our three tests. And I'm going to put them in a form of three questions that we can ask both of ourselves and of other people. First of all, what do you believe? It's good to know what you believe. That's a test of our theology. Secondly, how do you live? That's a test of our morality. And thirdly, do you love others? That's the test of our social responsibility. So let's take them one by one. First test, what do you believe? And you'll find that mostly in and around chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? John doesn't mess around. He comes right to the crux of the matter. For the first time, John identifies outright the false teaching of those who had left the community. And if you put it together with a lot of other statements throughout the letter, you find that they denied that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. That he was God's son come in the flesh, whose death was real and vicarious. They were not people who, for some reason or other, had a fallout with their fellow Christians and went off in a bit of a huff to another church. They didn't disagree with with the hymns that were being sung or whether the ladies wore hats or whatever. No, this was much more fundamental than any of that. They were never believers. They never had accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were in the church under false pretenses. Don't be surprised, says John, that they're going. Don't be surprised. Don't ask yourself, how can they lose their faith? They never belonged to us in the first place. And their going only proved it. John is careful to point out that to deny the deity of the Lord Jesus is to deny the Father too. You see, some people claim to have fellowship with God but don't want anything to do with his son. And this is the acid test. Is Jesus the Christ? With all the implications of that, if you truly accept that truth and all those implications of our need and his provision, and we've been thinking about that this morning at the breaking of bread. If you are relying alone on Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and you believe that he is the atoning sacrifice for your sins, then you can have the assurance of salvation and the assurance that you have fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Test number two, how do I live? We know we have come to know him if we, and then he gives us some points, obey, basically. And I have three subdivisions. Nigel will be delighted. A, obey his commands. B, obey his word. And C, live as Jesus lived. And there's this uh, definite progression of thought here. Let's take them one by one again. Obeying his commands That means obeying the teachings of Christ as we find them in the New Testament. In his gospel, John records Jesus' direct words. Chapter 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's fellowship, isn't it? John 5, verse 3. He returns to the subject. This is love for God to obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome for everyone born of God overcomes the world. Do you see how obedience to his commands and love for him are closely linked? Second one, obey his word. Obeying his word suggests going further, I suggest. If anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly complete in him. What's the ultimate expression of our love for God? Is it singing worship songs with 15 choruses over and over again? Is it some mystical experience? No, says John, no. Love for God reaches completion in obedience to his word. And I think this goes even wider than than Jesus' recorded words in the Gospels. It covers all the inspired word of God. When we read and cherish and obey the word, we demonstrate that we are true believers and that we love God. So, obeying Jesus' direct commands, obeying his word, and thirdly, living As Jesus lived and that's perhaps the ultimate expression of genuine faith. It gathers up those two previous points in the ultimate example of obedience. He was obedient to his father's commands. He delighted to do his father's will and that's the standard that is set for us. It's much more than an example of course but of course Jesus is our best example. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. It's not a life that you and I can live in our own strength. It's only possible by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. But we must allow the Spirit to shape us into Christ-likeness. And the question is this morning, is there a family resemblance? So put those three together and we get that second test. How do I live? But then the third test and the final test is this. Love for fellow believers. And you'll find that in 2.10. It's an old command, says John. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, it's an old command. But at the same time, this love has found a new and full expression in the cross. And in Jesus' teaching on the Old Testament law of love It seemed new to those people who listened to it. And to hark back to living as Jesus did in verse 6, I think it's very probable that John as an eyewitness had in mind what he saw Jesus do on earth, healing with compassion, touching the untouchables, bending to wash the feet of the disciples, love in action. Here's the warning, though. If you profess to be a believer... And hate those who are true Christians is a true sign that you are walking in darkness. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't really have a problem hating anyone, never mind my brother or sister. But in the, the Bible, love and hate are primarily actions, not emotions. And later in the the letter, John gives us a bit more detail as to what hatred can look like. Indifference to need, violence, selfishness, malicious words, gossip, bitterness, unforgiveness, quarreling, consuming rather than serving, lust rather than love, posturing for power and position at the expense of others. So our final test this morning, love your brothers and sisters, verse 10. But maybe as you sit there, you're thinking, well, I believe everything he says about the Lord Jesus Christ. But often, if I'm honest, my living falls short. And loving my brothers and sisters, you don't know them. It's hard to like someone, never mind to love them. But let's be clear here. John is not looking for faultless obedience to the will of God, but rather that we have this deep-seated desire to keep his commands, to please him, and to live a life that reflects Christ. He's looking for the overall trajectory of our lives. True, John's opening uh, words in this chapter are very challenging. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But he follows quickly with clarification. If anyone does sin, and we're back at this, the starting point this morning. God is holy. His standard for us, his people, is perfection. So he doesn't say, tell you what, just do the best you can. Sin as little as possible. But at the same time, he has made gracious provision for our failure. He remembers that we are but dust. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. If we want to have fellowship with the Father and the Son, and with our brothers and sisters, we must confess our sins. And our Father is absolutely faithful and just to forgive us. Perhaps this morning you are weary, beaten down by shame because you've stumbled again. I write this to you that you will not sin. Sin is no longer your master sin. Christ has set us free. Our chains are gone. The strings that Satan used to control us by, which made us as puppets, have been severed. Now we have a choice and we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John offers us this assurance of grace because he knows we are those clay pots. We will fail. We will crumble. Fellowship will falter. And when that happens, turn around and look at Christ on the cross and the finished work. Look again at the source of our assurance. Let me say it again. Jesus Christ, the righteous. We are called to be faithful, not flawless. In closing, the false teaching that John wrote about is very much the agenda we see around us don't be fooled. Let's ju- use John's three tests to expose their lies. But let us let him also remind us that if we remain in the truth, we have the assurance of fellowship this morning. What a thing it is. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.